Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Today I'm with Maya Ben-Dwar. Welcome, Maya. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Gunnar. Maya, you have a huge background in clean tech and also mobility that goes back, in your own words, one and a half decades of um, being internationally active in this space. And I want to just give a brief introduction before we go into your current role at the World Economic Forum of where you are from originally academically and your role right now. So you hold a PhD in dynamic transportation policy and technology transition from Technion. That already sounds like the destination was uh, mapped out <laughs> many, many years ago. Before that, Master of Science in Environmental Change and Management from Oxford and uh, Bachelor of Science in Economics East Asian Studies from Hebrew University. So already in the topic for a long time and currently leading sustainable automotive and mobility work at the World Economic Forum. Everybody has heard about VEF and the summit that's typically held in Davos and publications that the World Economic Forum makes. But who's this organization? How does that even work? Can you give us a bit of an introduction to what this organization is that you're leading mobility at? Yeah, sure. So the World Economic Forum is an international organization that builds collaboration between public and private decision makers, as well as citizens and third parties, to try and solve uh, the problems of today and the future in order for us to achieve a, a better world. And in the context of mobility, we're looking at shaping a better future for mobility, recognizing that the current situation, mobility ecosystems at large, in aviation, maritime, and on the road, are filled with gaps that we need to address sustainability gaps, resilience gaps, uh, inclusivity gaps, and safety gaps. So we're trying to tackle all of that with our partners. So the World Economic Forum is essentially a think tank, I guess. Is that fair to say? or I would actually say it's a do tank. So traditionally in the 70s, the um, Klaus Schwab, who initiated the World Economic Forum, has together with, Zawahi, with his wife, set up this one single event that was meant to be a one-off in Davos. But then the participation was so, uh, was so great and the value that it has given heads of states and CEOs of large companies was such that they've asked for another meeting. This was an, an informal way for getting together and trying to speak about the issues that are bothering them and acknowledge some of the challenges that they have to partner on in order to overcome. And then... Slowly but surely, the forum has become an organization that does not only hold these high-level events, but also between these events have pours in a lot of content and tries to take the conversations happening then in those specific events and implement through CEOs minus one, minus two, minus three. So we work collaboratively with these companies in order to deliver. And in that sense, it is very much a do tank. We actually do not do research. We sometimes do have professional service uh, support consultancy firms joining us and Gunnar, you've been, you've been working in one of those for quite some time. And they support us in understanding what type of insight can we extract, particularly qualitative insight as we gather these excellent folks from all walks of society and then helps guide us into the right type of action and help us measure success. But by all means, it's about the action and less about the, uh, the think tank. 
That's very interesting. So you are basically providing this platform for people to come together originally in the form of an in-person event. That's still, I guess, is regularly happening. There are now multiple um, events throughout the year, but then there's also a lot of digital interaction and this online platform. And you're highlighting also other people's content sometimes and basically pushing in different domains, different topic areas, yeah, progress forward. But of course, the question that I asked myself originally before it was kind of also explained to me is um, basically like, how, how does that work? How does that get funded? How does this, um, who, who's behind it? What direction are you trying to push things? Can you just say a few words about that? How does that work economically? Because that's not a, like a, a state actor. It's not the Swiss government behind it or something like that. It's actually private initiative, but leading in a, in a clear direction with clear uh, values and a vision, basically. Yes, yes, indeed. It is an international organization and recognized as such by the Swiss government. It is uh, it was initially, in, initially privately initiated, but very much a members-based organization. So we absorb members' fees, but we also absorb grants from philanthropic organizations and otherwise. We are very cautious on making sure that the decisions we're making are actually based on an informed consensus between different parties. So it has to have a really good balance between private, public, and third sector, and not influenced by the money that we that we're receiving. So very much a delicate task indeed, but I think that we're proving to work quite quite uniquely in that space. And I guess the two very clear value propositions that have made me join the World Economic Forum are one, that this is an international organization and a third party, but then acts on the highest level. So heads of states, CEOs of the largest companies, that if they were to make a decision individually in coordination or collaboratively, then so much can change. We can see quick impact that otherwise we would have to walk our way up to create. And we don't have that time, for example, in, in the wake of climate change. And then the second value that I think is really exciting, and I've been looking at this as an outsider of the World Economic Forum for quite some time, and that's the social media interactions. And, and we, we like calling it shaping opinions or, or helping shift mindsets. And this is really a dedicated arm of the forum that is really specialized at taking some of the content that we produce and making it accessible for the average listener, so or the average viewer. And we have over 30 million followers on Facebook, and we have other channels as well. And the idea is to nudge. And I really like that concept. And actually, that's the first book I got when I studied at Oxford. <laughs> it was, oh, okay, guys, uh, here you go. You have to read the book, Nudge. And Kahneman. <laughs> actually, there is, a new, um, there is a new version of the book, Nudge, that have just came out, I think, uh, a year ago. And that's obviously the book uh, by Richard Teller. And the idea is that you, you cannot really create change by using carrots and sticks alone. And you cannot coordinate change that require a behavioral change without helping people see that they are making a choice and inspire them to have a moment, to think a moment before they make that choice and help them see that they can change their decision-making. And slowly but surely, you're creating this environment of paradigm shift that can really happen, you know, boots, having boots on the ground. So, and I think many states actually now use that too. So recognizing that the nudge feature is really important. So that's the second, I guess, um, major strength of the forum. Yeah. <laughs> you Making might, you information available, highlighting good content to 
make people think for a moment and influence policy decisions, but maybe also individual company decisions or consumer decisions in a good direction. How does all of that play out in the field of mobility that you are working on? What do you think are some of the important decisions that have to be made there that you are trying to influence? I know you, you are running basically a series of initiatives, different topics, decarbonization, maybe policy frameworks for autonomous vehicles and so on. But what are the what are, what are the topics that are most on your mind at the moment that you are trying to influence from this position that you are in? Ah, I like how you frame it. Let me propose a different frame, yeah? Um, okay. I have a lot of topics in my mind that I like to solve. And if it was up to me, we'll be doing a gazillion of things. Mm -hmm. But given that we're trying to mobilize decision makers at the highest level, we really need to understand what keeps them up awake at night. What, Where are they going to be most engaged? We don't want to chase anyone. We want to have people fully on board. We want to find these timely opportunities, if you will, windows of opportunities to create change. And that really what's, what dictates or what helps us determine the workload or the work program for every single year. And actually, I would even argue intervals of months. And we're seeing now, for example, the war in Ukraine a moment before we had COVID. We still have COVID, but that was top of mind. And we are always very agile. So even though we might have a program that is long lasting, we might shift resources a bit or even change the way we craft the program or we use or we work with the community that is engaged in order to tap into what's currently the issue of the hour. And in 2022, I guess that there are three main issues that we will work on. Two are continuing from the past. One is urban mobility transitions. We are recognizing that we'll have 60% of world population living in cities by 2030. We recognize that cities are actually the source of about 70% of, of, of transportation emissions. And we'd like to, to, to tap into that issue by working with our community that actually sees a lot of opportunities there. An urban space, a dense space with aware, awoken decision makers from the public sector and a very eager decision makers or businessmen, you would say, from the private sector is actually a very fertile ground to change the structure of the physical structure and I would say the uh, the business structure of how people and things move in this dense environment, be it shared, electric, connected, autonomous. The tech doesn't really matter. The, the solution we use is not the goal, uh, but there are so many solutions out there. And if we combine those, it's super exciting. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Second one for 2022 is going to be on circularity. And this is work that we initiated in Davos 2020, and we have so much excitement from the automotive community and the supply chain community um, and adjunct industries that are looking at the vehicle as uh, the product that absorbs about 13% of global steel demand, for example, an industry that is going to see five-fold increase in its battery demand every five years or so. So this is an industry that is highly changing right now. And the responsibility that the automotive industry has in overall emission reduction is huge. It also proposes a lot of new values if we're changing into circular uh, supply chains, manufacturing, you know, in including the afterlife of each, each, each product. It has so much value and so much profit that can be made and new businesses that are long sustainable can be created. 
And in this program, uh, we'll shift this year to continue to work on policy, but from the European focus, we're shifting to European and China focus. We might even expand to the US. And we have a proof of concept uh, work stream where we see three major groups already raising their hands and working to collaborate. One on batteries, another one on steel, net zero steel and aluminum, and then a third one that is really interested in working on polymers. And all of that really requires new business model. How do we partner and create new joint businesses to prove the cost reduction is in hindsight? So that's not too far-fetched. We can already commit. And I want to say that in this context, the World Economic Forum at COP26 launched the First Movers Coalition, which is a partnership between the U.S. administration and the forum, trying to create this space for demand and having large companies committing to net zero transition in six main areas that are considered hard to abate, including steel and including aluminum, for example, that has not yet been launched, by the way. Keep an, keep an open ear for that one. And that circularity piece that we're working on in automotive helps translate that to action. That's the do tank. And then the third space, just putting it out there, is going to be around the automotive industry in a, or the automotive ecosystem, I should say, in a new software era. So you, you said three main topics in 2022 are, and those are huge ones, each by them, each by in their own right. But the first is urban mobility transitions. Second, circularity. And third, the automotive ecosystem in a software era. And can you talk a little bit about the first urban mobility transition? So you're looking at making better use of urban infrastructure as urbanization progresses and a large share of global air pollution is currently caused by traffic in cities. How are you like very practically able to accelerate or influence somehow these um so can you can you give some specific example of how you connected people that then launched into a pilot that they otherwise wouldn't have or like where where do you see some opportunities for you to come in yeah so yeah gladly i mean there there are two types of opportunities largely speaking One would be more of an ad hoc, and that's similar to our partnership, Gunnar. During the, you know, the early days of COVID, we partnered to create the Wheel Move platform. Mm -hmm. It was all about let's bring everyone that has any service to offer and is willing to expand to any city in the world and the cities in the world that might have a need to create a new mobility, a new mobility service uh, for their essential staff or essential workers. Uh, so that's one example. That's a very um, reactive mode where mm -hmm. we need to have somebody leading that, such as you guys have done in Wonder Mobility and have the mm -hmm. other folks, the other community members eager to put their information on and, and willing to partner. Mm -hmm. And then the second is a bit more, um, a bit more well-informed by our community. And everything I say, I keep saying community. The idea is that we have a very good balance between private, public and nonprofit in every conversation that we're having. Mm -hmm. And it's it's well it's very diverse and geographically in scope as well. And we've had these conversations even before we formally initiated the Global New Mobility Coalition in the Sustainable Development Impact Act in 2019. But then after we have launched and had a very clear agenda and manifesto, then we started working in sprints. The first sprint was let's identify what are the policy actions that can be tweaked to prefer or have preferential treatment for solutions that are shared plus electric, plus connected, plus autonomous, the, 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 
the later two, obviously in the in the longer time horizon. And then from that, we shifted to saying, you know what, we have all these policy tools that we all agree on through dialogue. We had so many conversations and in design thinking workshops, even physical ones at the OECD International Transportation Forum in Leipzig. Um, and we met in New York again at the SDI. But then you know what? Let's let's do a bit, let's be a bit more intentional. We worked with C40, which represents a lot of cities in the world, and said, okay, let's work on submission areas. Let's first explain what that means, because a lot of people have this idea of, oh, that actually means a payment system to the city to even use my car. It's like, no, it's actually, it's not the purpose. The purpose is to have an area, be it a street, part of the street, a street, an entire area, entire zone that, uh, or a corridor of a few streets that uh, tries to create an environment that is less fossil fuel dependent in its mobility system. And now let's see how we can incentivize for that, knowing that every city would have its own approach, can have its own vision, its own approach, and its own tactics, given the various, you know, <laughs> environments, institutional, political, and uh, and capacities, skills, uh, companies operating, and so on. And that's when we did a very big exercise of collecting 150 case studies or so. And it was it was an awesome project. Everything actually went live on a virtual platform so that it's shareable. Mm-hmm. And that's another way of us to say, okay. Everyone here, surprisingly, everyone here in our platform actually agrees to the concept of zero emission areas. And you would have thought, oh, no chance that that company would ever think that this is a good idea because it will probably kill their businesses. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't. It's not going to kill their business if it's if it's done in a coordinated fashion. And that's the purpose. The purpose is to bring people together and see how this is probably the future. Now let's work towards that future together so that nobody's caught off guard and we can somehow see that businesses can survive that transition and even thrive on that transition. There are multiple aspects here that I find very fascinating. So one is this very collaborative approach and you keep calling this the community. And uh, I also yeah, did see that in action. Usually depends a little bit on the cultural context, but here in Germany uh, also, I think there's rivalry typically between different companies and it's maybe not not so common to speak very openly about each other's plans, but you're trying to provide these settings where people can also innovate together and collaborate together. And then you mentioned a partner in this initiative, probably in other contexts, was C40, um, the, like a coalition of large cities, basically, I think, in different geographies. And I wonder, in your work on mobility, what role do cities versus also national governments play? Because that's something for us as operators or us as also service providers to operators It's typically where we interact with also. It's actually the, the individual city that makes or breaks everything. Is that in your work also typically the go-to public instance is actually a city because cities shape this topic of mobility or is that kind of a misperception and it's, it's on all levels, also on a national level and so on? Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you. I mean, we obviously have these have had these conversations before. And, and yeah, I agree. You do need to interact on various levels in most instances. But in the context of the urban mobility transition scope of work that we have, like the Global New Mobility Coalition, that we do have a coalition of cities and we have mm-hmm. knowledge partners from city, existing city coalitions like C40 and Police Network and others. And indeed, the city would uh, in uh, in some cases, have a lot of influence and power over how it um, controls space and cost of mobility services. 
So land use would be one huge lever that the city can use. And we've seen during COVID how cities have exercised that muscle. And that was um, lovely to see the reaction of entire neighborhoods in favor of removing on-street parking, for example, in some cases. And then there is a cost element uh, that the city can also um, put to practice, uh, which tends to be a bit more tensionous politically, I would argue. But again, each city would have its own context. That said, in the European, on the context of, of, of Europe, we, ha- we are working with the, uh, with the European Commission as well, the Commissioner for Transport, Cabinet. And we're very excited to see all the work that is being put out there through R&D grants, through, for example, the Revel project, uh, trying to tease out zero emission zones and their articulation in eight pilot cities in Europe. And we also see the framework for cities that has recently been launched uh, and some guidelines on how to respond to right hailing companies in a way that in a way that harnesses their ability to to transition to zero emission area zero emission vehicles quickly more quickly potentially than private owners. We see all of that as extremely valuable guidance, and in some cases we see countries that play a huge role. And obviously, you, you operate in Germany, and the German government did have a few regulations recently that have impacted. And how mobility operators operate, because you know everything impacts. It's not just it's not just whether or not you give a company uh, the space or the right cost to operate within. It's also the labor laws and and other elements that would impact the company's ability to to perform mm-hmm. and other regulations. So obviously, all of the levels <laughs> should be engaged. But again, we're not lobbying, so it's not about let's tell them. It's never about let's tell them. It's always about let's have a conversation about this challenge you're having. Now, let's see what, why do you have that challenge? How can we convert that into an opportunity? Who needs to do what and who might be willing to do what? I mean, is it feasible and is it impactful for each partner here in this conversation to do something in order to change the status quo, in order to help us move one step further towards that vision we all share? And every conversation starts with, This is the vision we share. This is where we want to get to. Now, we all have our challenges and our limitations. Let's let's work through these in incremental steps often. Before we go maybe into circularity, where I would love to talk also about what in terms of circularity you're already seeing in uh, micromobility, if anything, I would like to take a little detour on the vision because your work seems to build on the assumption that most actors can easily agree on and share a certain vision. And now here are tools and here's a platform to talk about it, find solutions together, maybe pilot things and so on. Where do you see maybe some elements where it's harder to agree on a joint vision? So for example, what I mean is maybe everybody thinks it's a good thing to have zero emissions eventually. That would be nice for the air and, and health and environment. And so if there's technology available, it would be nice. But what about, for example, the use of data or the way in which a city is directing its people rather than just coordinating them. So there are very different visions of a smart city of a future, I think, where it's either, well, I'm free to go wherever I want, even if that leads me into a traffic jam because I like this route, or I get told where to stop, where to go, what to do. I get basically fully transparent in my my whereabouts and uh, get taken along for the ride in a way. So there is yeah. also a philosophical difference between this coordinating more liberal city and then the more controlling uh, smart city. Do you 
come across sort of like on the edges where visions are different for the future when it goes beyond maybe clean technology into especially, I think, probably data usage and smart technology and maybe yeah. deployment of AI and what do humans decide versus what does the central brain of a city decide? Yeah, definitely. This is a really strong point to make. I mean, how prepared people are to lock out of their current habits and mm. where there are less habits already, <laughs> it's easier to drive it towards a, a vision, a future that is extremely futuristic to us, say, in the, in the Western world. We have our extreme lock-ins already in the way that we move about, and particularly in the, in the urban context. You know, either Europe model, the European city model, or the uh, US city model, if I am allowed to be simplistic. Mm-hmm. You know, being, having lived in, and worked out of China for seven years on and off, I would give you the example of China as, um, you know, that, that is a society that has just leapfrogged so many solutions. They have never been into the credit era. They've leapfrogged from cash to online payments. And you can go to a distant village. You could have gone to a distant village already in 2014 uh, when I was living there and, and pay through WeChat for the flowers you want to get in the market. Yeah, just an example. So obviously there is so much more openness in some societies and therefore the vision can be can be much bolder. Whereas in our society, we really have to work together with varying stakeholder groups that have already been also locked into social inclusivity issues, gaps. And we need to also accommodate for those at the same time. So it's extremely challenging. But I'll give two examples of things that we've done to try and, and, and use that tailored approach. So one was when we started the zero emission area work, which took us about eight months. Then after the six months of dialogues and one-on-one consultations with companies, we've, we've started writing down that ideal model that helps assess without having emotions in the equation. And in order for us to move, remove emotions from the equation and be very scientific about it, we said, okay, let's look at what types of policies are out there, are already at our disposal. We have some sort of know-how, the variant access regulations, pricing mechanisms, and hybrid policies. And then let's also look at what type of stakeholder groups will be affected if such a policy is going to be implemented in their street or in their zone. And then we said that the output, and it was beautiful to see, in the output, you can assess a cost-benefit analysis, a simple one. You can see how if you implement or integrate a bundle of five different policies that you think your city can politically pull off, who is going to be uh, benefiting from these in dollar amounts? Yeah, Um, emission reduction versus uh, acceptability, social acceptability uh, within the city. Where are the benefits? And where are the gaps? And the idea is this is how it helps you as a decision maker in the city and as a party to that decision making process. I mean, this should be open to everyone is to identify where are you going to have specific challenges. And then ahead of even starting to talk about a new integration of solutions, have a conversation with that stakeholder group. If they're not organized, find find a way to organize them. Because according to your analysis, this is going to be the group that is going to be impacted most in the short term. So that's one example. And then the second example is when we worked with Policy Network last year as part of the Zero Emission Urban Fleets, we said, and the concept was, um, the quickest way to achieve carbon reductions in cities, instead of speaking policy, 
let's talk about who the target audience should be. And obviously, target audience should be fleets because fleet operators usually per vehicle have three or four times the mileage, the kilometer of a privately used car. So now let's see which fleet segments are operating in that city. Let's bring them to the table and let's do this in eight cities in, in Europe. And then ask the city, you know, in a context of zero emission fleets, what are your biggest questions? What are your biggest concerns as city? Why would you or wouldn't you introduce a policy? And then we gather the, that insight and curated a conversation per city. Some of them was, some of those were open door webinar style. Some of those were closed door. But this was a way for us to also accommodate for that gap, even within Europe. Yeah, different cities had different sensitivities and, and different approaches to, to deal with fleet electrification. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, I guess, a, a second example. And you mentioned that being in China gave examples of how they sometimes now leapfrog technologies. And specifically when it comes to mobility in cities, what's something that you maybe see in China already that you think inevitably is it's going to happen in, in Europe or in the US as well? Do you think that visiting them, that's also the direction we are going or are they on a different path? Well, China, in the context of cities, China is dealing with uh, a rapid organi- rapid urbanization. So we have basically absorbed most of the city dwellers that we were meant to absorb in the West. And we are now seeing a directional uh, sort of a directional change to the other to the mm-hmm. other side, having people sort of being more comfortable and not owning properties or moving outside or further away from the city because of the new work organizational arrangements out there whereas china is really still in a in a in a very early phase of that growth so majority of populations in china is already living in these cities but that's just around the 50% and we're going to see more so i think vision wise china has earlier on looked into the one kilometer city model that I think McKinsey put it out 2012. It's like one kilometer city model. Now we see, we have now a lot of new names for that, right? The compact city, yeah. the 15 minute city, we have so mm-hmm. many other names for it. But I think China has been looking at this and have been maintaining the um, suburban vibe through its marketplaces. It's also culturally. I mean, people do go and do shopping for cooking on the same day or even before that their meal. Whereas we've shifted away, we've shifted away from that model quite, quite, quite earlier on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see many differences besides that. I think we're all going towards that model, only that China really needs to face with a lot more people and a lot more new city dwellers, which has its own pros and cons in many ways. I wanted to circle back to the topic of circularity, which you mentioned is one of your 22 highlights. And you talked about the usage of steel and battery capacity that's fivefold every five years in automotive at the moment. And your work's also covering, I believe, the automotive industry. It's not only about new mobility where, where we are working at, but maybe if we could try to zoom into those light electric vehicles, the, the two-wheelers, the e-bikes, kick scooters, uh, mopeds that we're also mostly dealing with and trading in and so on and contributing to in their, in their development, there's not a lot of circularity thought going into this yet. What what are you observing or what are some of your thoughts about these kind of shared electric vehicles when it comes to circularity? Do you see this being a big topic in some areas? Do you think 
it will come, what will trigger it? Do you even maybe have certain front runners in mind that are already have proven um, certain things that go beyond the current standard? Where do you come in, in touch with that? <laughs> You're like putting me in the spot. I don't want any names. <laughs> no, no, uh, of course. But, but. <laughs> but there are actually companies that are um, at least stating to be thinking more holistically and um, embedding circularity into their practices for sure. And also thinking new materials, um, more durable materials and so on. Not, not that that's necessarily the solution. Sometimes a second life would be a better solution than durable, durable materials. This is case by case that needs to be examined. SPTI in general, science-based targets are in general important and working with third parties that can help validate is important. And I think that your point on two and three wheelers, even though we haven't really worked with two and three wheelers yet within the circular cars initiative, that is just the gunshot, the, fight, the first gunshot that we have, we're going to do much more on circularity value chains in the coming year. But, uh, but I guess two and three wheelers do have some experience because they had to deal with so much scrutiny, public scrutiny, and government requirements as part of city RFPs, that they actually had to talk about their environmental assessment. They had to think about data specifications and all sorts of things that um, those that have been operating in city streets for so long have never really had to deal with because public interest and, and public opinion wasn't there yet on these, on these issues. So I think two and three wheelers have a huge potential in leading the way forward. And I'm really proud to say that the one thing we have done is actually part of the Global New Mobility Coalition, <laughs> is to work with two- and three-wheeler companies and, and other mobility service providers. And we also had a couple of OEMs participating and talked about how should we report emissions, voluntarily report on the um, emissions that our operations are creating within the city. So thinking about a city context and ahead of having hard regulations in the space saying, well, we want to accommodate for every trip, accounting for also the few miles that are coming or attached to this trip because of maintenance, because of service, because of any other costs that the company might have in order to operate my single, my single kilometer, five kilometer trip. And that's, and that's something that we were very excited to, to launch at the Davos Agenda Week uh, in January. And we had seven principles out there. You can check it online. And then the second stop for us would be um, a city new mobility scorecards. And that's work that we're initiating soon at the OECD International Transportation Forum this year. And everyone listening and interested to learn more, please uh, PM me or Mary Lone on social media, on LinkedIn, and we'll be happy to onboard more people. And the idea would be, let's see um, how can we account for the joint responsibility of mobility service providers, be it transit, be it ride hailing, be it two and three wheeler operators, be it any shirt fleet, be it delivery companies, and cities in order to make sure that our transition is actually happening. Because talk aside, we have to measure whether or not we are meeting our goals, whether or not we are on a success path, because time is running out. And circling back to circularity, I do believe that there is so much that we can still do. And these are just the early days of circularity. And I think this is going to be a no-brainer for any company that wishes to have long-lasting businesses with solid profits. What's your assumption behind that? I mean, you do hear that now sometimes, um, circularity. When I think back, ERR Frankfurt some months ago last fall, the BMW, we can't even say booth. It's like a huge stage, right? And it was all about circularity. And this was their main topic in, in the keynotes. And you hear people say, well, this is 
like to future proof our business. You can't possibly maybe be a profitable business if you don't solve circularity. But what's the assumption behind that? Because it's not that people necessarily pay a premium for it. I mean, what's your assumption behind it? Why, why is that for businesses maybe beyond a marketing branding question, an existential question in the future? So I guess then in the context of the transition in automotive to zero emission vehicles, which is already a fact, right? That's already has been established, both by regulators <laughs> phasing out ICE and both by companies already declaring they're shifting to ICE by 2040, 2045, 2035, each company in its own timeline. Then we are seeing a product called a vehicle that is going to have, instead of 80% of its emission from the in-use phase, it's going to have only 20%, sorry, 40% of its emissions from in-use phase and 60% of emissions just from materials that go into that vehicle. Because obviously zero emission vehicles have less small parts and are going to be more reliant on, um, you know, heavily reliant on the batteries. And then the battery also creates another, another opportunity. I don't want to say problem. That's an opportunity. Now, the second issue to keep an eye out for is that the margins from vehicle sales are already going to be shrinking. A, we're investing quite a lot in each piece of product that we're putting on the road there with not just um, elect- not just electric powertrains, but also informatics and other systems that we have to put in. And the industry has to adjust to a, a world where you don't just sell the product and enjoy 70% of profit from afterlife <laughs> components that go into that vehicle throughout its lifespan, but rather an industry that now sells a car and then a service attached to this car and has a lot of responsibility into how the vehicle experience or how the experience of the user of the vehicle, be it a fleet operator or be it a private owner, is going to have. And that's a whole new ballgame. And the software costs quite a lot of money. The margins are just shrinking and the model is is transforming. Now, in that specific, you know, giving those those two specific issues, if we now shift to circularity, if we don't rely on resources that go into the battery that are already scarce, that are already highly ge- geopolitically dependent, and you know, you know, you don't want to be too dependent geopolitically, then you have to think about how do you extract the most out of each component that you have through a circular system. So you're not you're removing the dependencies, you're reducing these risks, you're reducing the costs. And it's, it's, it's doable, particularly because most companies already are putting so much investment now as they're trying to meet their, their own commitments or the nation's commitments. You know, the markets that they sell to are already committed. So how do you, how do you do it? You do it now and you do it fast. But the problem is costs are still high and the evaluation is not quite there yet, or there is no consensus uh, yet around how do you account? How do you ensure? that your solution is the solution that is going to be meeting the standard because standards are still being developed. So all, all, so much work needs to happen. It will probably happen over the coming five years. So anyone who doesn't get their skin in the game right now would probably be a legger, which is fine as long as we have enough early movers to create the demand on time. So your assumption is, if I, if I can rephrase my own words, that because of the scarcity of raw materials and the urgency of these yeah, resource questions, but also pollution questions, the focus of the regulator that maybe has been on the in-use consumption of resources will expand to more of a life cycle analysis kind of approach where you actually maybe as a consumer or anybody buying, you cannot just see very easily the, the consumption, but kind of following 
certain standards that aren't established yet, an easy view of, of kind of a cradle to cradle view of this product. And you think that's basically going to come about by regulation eventually once standards are set because it's urgently needed. And then companies who are beginning to optimize towards this now will basically have an advantage in this race. I think they will be, they will have surely an advantage because they already have consumers buying and mm -hmm. they, and remember, it's not just the end user. And we see it in, in a, in the example yeah. of a Swedish company that already is committed to creating a label that um, explains exactly how much, how many emissions have been consumed while producing the vehicle. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see that already come live um, in the summer, I think. But then you also, as a company, want to make sure that you are able to sell a bulk of vehicles to these fleet operators that are becoming a big player now in this industry. You have fleet, fleet operators from delivery fleet companies. Yeah, you have the, the big delivery giants in the world committed to zero emission vehicles and the leasing companies also starting to commit. Uh, actually, some have already committed in 2017 to zero emission, emission, to zero emission vehicles by 2030. You want to be able to sell to them How do you sell to them without having that accountability first and, you know, creating these products first? So I think there is a lot of opportunity. But back to also the point of profits and, you know, margins are becoming, you know, are shrinking. And an industry that has a shrinking, you know, margins does have to think really creatively and, and be one step ahead this time because it has been one step behind regulation largely. And I think it's time to, um, yeah. <laughs> to put the sleeves up and get to work. And we gladly see so many companies engaged at the Circular Cars Initiative and along with our partners in WBSD mm -hmm. that is uh, leading on our seal track. We see so much excitement and we're very hopeful. I'd like to spend also a few minutes understanding a bit more about the third point that you highlighted as kind of a focus area for 2022, the automotive ecosystem in a software age. What's behind that? What, what are the, what's the challenge that you are trying to address and bring people together about here? Yeah, I guess you mentioned the EIA Mobility last September, and we've seen a launch there in the context of circularity. We've seen another launch in the context of software. And now we've seen more since. We've been seeing a lot big launches from large OEMs in North America also coming and saying, we're setting up an entire software company. I guess that that's, that's just one very obvious uh, indication of how the industry now has to create the ability to provide services to those purchasing these cars to extract value from the owners of the vehicles and the vehicle operation. I would even argue per kilometer valuation, <laughs> you know, how much data can you put or what is the value that you can put on, on the data extracted from each kilometer driven by the user or users, depending on the model. And then, and of course, how much would you invest in providing a service for that kilometer? And we also see, obviously, a lot of software companies in the game. And I think an excellent example would be the Chinese company NIO. And, you know, I've avoided mentioning companies' names before, but I think in the case of, of NIO, they were very early in the game saying, we're not even, even manufacturing our own car. We are outsourcing manufacturing of the vehicle. We're really focused on the R&D. We're really focused on the experience and the service on the brand that is the brand of the future. That's where we're headed. Now, one more thing, maybe on the software era, we also need to recognize, and that's what we're planning on doing, is that there are so many information transportation systems out there owned by governments and owned, you know, by third parties 
We have infrastructure holders, owners from communication infrastructure and, and other infrastructure as well, even I would argue cement road building, that all can have, and already some of them have, a skin in the game. They all want to be part of the the system that provides charging, the system that provides information about road conditions, about availability, about any other condition that might impact the operation of a connected car or an autonomous vehicle. And so there is so much information that can be shared. And my beam of light would be, we should avoid uh, duplicating infrastructure this time. We've done it before with communication systems. We shouldn't repeat the same mistake of putting so much material and occupying space and creating these radiations in the context of, of communications infrastructure. We should, we should know better by now that we can partner and we should partner and we, we should create the right conditions that, that enable that in a safe and secure environment. So I guess that's where we're headed in a nutshell. But come join us. Anyone listening that is interested and intrigued, uh, we're going to open that community after the annual meeting in Davos that for the first time is going to happen, not in the winter, but rather in the <laughs> spring. That's very fascinating. So there's a lot of ground you are covering in your work with your team from uh, urban mobility transitions to circularity, the transition to software-based companies. And yeah, all these topics still on the one hand, not new this year, but still so relevant and still something in the making. And it's very fascinating to speak to you that you have basically access to so many people in the industry and can yeah, try to kind of lure everybody out of his or her corner and uh, make them collaborate to innovate and yeah, transform cities faster. Thanks a lot for sharing with us a little bit from your work and also from how this organization, World Economic Forum, actually works. It's very fascinating to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gunnar, for having me. Always a pleasure chatting with you.